Hi, I'm Jason Nichols, and I'm on the left. And I'm Vince Colonnese, and I'm on the right. And, and if, if we, we can't, can't find, find common, common ground, ground in this world, world today, today, then we're all just travelers. Passing each other in an international airport. In this great American experiment. We'll be relegated to the trash bin of history. So let's come together. To debate without yelling. And, and let's, let's save, save this, this nation. nation. A journalist, a constitutional lawyer, and an author of four New York Times bestselling books ahead on Vincent Jason, Save the Nation. Vincent Jason, Save the Nation is brought to you by Goldco. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Vincent Jason, Save the Nation. I'm Dr. Jason Nichols. And that right there is my colleague and very good friend, Vince Colonnese. And we've got a very special guest, someone who I looked up to for a really long time, uh, who's with us today. Vince, who do we have with us today? With us today, Glenn Greenwald, the journalist, former constitutional lawyer, author of, as I said, four New York Times bestselling books, uh, an interesting thinker. And as Jason and I were talking just about talking about just before you uh, joined us here, uh, Glenn, it's it's hard to pin you down in terms of where you fit on the uh, political spectrum. Uh, but it feels like, you know, there's this desire among people who engage in politics to say, OK, where's that guy fall? Is he wearing my colors or not? Uh, what is that about? Is it, is it just about, you know, the pure pursuit of political power to try and pin where people are on the spectrum? I think in one way it's kind of become, and first of all, thank you for those very nice remarks. I'm really happy to be here, especially since you're in the important work of saving the nation. Um, so I want to contribute whatever <laughs> I can trying. to to your endeavor. Um, yeah, you know, I think part of it is just a shorthand to try and understand uh, how people think in order not to have to grapple with the arguments they're advancing. So if you can put somebody into an ideological box or pin a partisan label to their forehead, you can either affirm what it is they're saying or dismiss what they're saying based on that alone without having to engage the substance of, of the discussion. And that's in part one of the reasons why I wouldn't say I go out of my way deliberately to evade those kind of labels, but I've never sought nor rejected any of them. Um, you know, the only one I've uh, claimed is a civil libertarian, given that it just kind of grows out of my political ethos since childhood. It's really the one consistent guiding principle or political sensibility that I have. And, and obviously, having been a lawyer before becoming a journalist, that was a major focus of, of my legal work. So that is a label with which I'm comfortable, though it doesn't help people very much, especially these days where there's a real question about is civil libertarianism found more on the left or the right? Is both is either party a real ally to civil libertarianism? Um, but I basically, I mostly think that it's just a, a means to prevent people from having to confront a lot of the complexities and nuances that actually drive our discourse by trying to convert it all to a simple binary that's much more easy to comprehend. Right and then use these kind of tools of dismissal in order to apply them to. So with, uh, <clears throat> and I apologize to you and to our audience, I'm, I'm under the weather. So if I, if I sound unclear or if I'm coughing and all that, please forgive. Is this gonna be some kind of super spreader event? <laughs> <laughs> well, we're not in the same room, so I hope not. Uh, right. I definitely, you know, my household is a super spreader right now. I made everybody <laughs> sick, but right. um. You mentioned, you know, civil libertarianism and, and you're a constitutional lawyer. So I'm kind of understanding that that would be your kind of judicial philosophy as well. And I'm wondering how you feel 
about Mississippi and, uh, you know, this case that's coming out of the SCOTUS right now. Um, and what we're at least in, in this draft opinion uh, that we're seeing, which is not a final opinion, but, you know, it, it looks like it will probably, that's probably how it's going to shake out. I'm wondering what, what your position is on that. Yeah, you know, one of the things that I've always tried to do ever since I started writing about politics and, and journalism is contribute my views or my analysis or my reporting or my expertise to topics in which I feel like I have something valuable and unique to say, as opposed to just doing it in order to signal where I'm positioned on the political spectrum for reasons we just discussed. And abortion has always been the, just the general abortion debate, the specific legal debate around Roe versus Wade for me has always been an example of one of the most fruitless uh, debates in which to engage precisely because all anyone is interested in is the binary question of on which side of the, the debate do you fall and any arguments you might want to advance to eliminate parts of the debate are ignored and people just just forget all that it's annoying just tell me are you pro-life or pro-choice right and you know i think the interesting aspect of the way that this has happened that the court clearly seems poised to overturn roe versus wade is that it's this bizarre paradox <laughs> where on the one hand roe versus wade has taken on extreme symbolic importance for both the left and the right and yet, even some of the most dogmatic and devoted liberal constitutional law specialists like Lawrence Tribe and, and many others, and Alito actually cited them in his opinion, have long acknowledged that as a matter of jurisprudence, Roe versus Wade, Roe versus Wade is basically you know, just an intellectual atrocity. Like there may be ways to concoct or to justify why the constitution guarantees the right of women to have abortions, but most people, even people on the pro-choice side of this debate have long said that Roe versus Wade isn't it. It was just a terribly crafted and kind of intellectually shoddy piece of jurisprudence. And so we're constantly forced to defend or repudiate a decision which from just a pure jurisprudential standpoint is really not respected by very many people at all. And yet it has become this incredibly vitriolic flashpoint that has driven American politics for, for decades. It's been very important to Republican politics. Lots of evangelicals who long were apolitical became engaged in politics because of Roe versus Wade and their anger over it. There's a possibility that lots of liberals and Democrats who might've stayed home in November will now be motivated to vote over their anger about the court's uh, apparent overruling of, of Roe versus Wade. So I think you have to separate these questions, which are very difficult to do in a debate where nuance is particularly disfavored about, is this a correct decision from a constitutional perspective? And then where does one fall politically on the question of abortion? Well, on, on the issue of Roe versus Wade, it's interesting. You look at the polling, and it seems the American public is confused about what's actually at stake, in part. I mean, you get polling that demonstrates that the majority of the public supports keeping Roe versus Wade in place. But the, but similar polling reveals that they support restrictions that Roe currently precludes. In other words, uh, you know, they, they, they don't like expansive abortions, the abortion of, of unborn children, but they do want to keep 
precedent in place, like almost like as if they're basically saying that they they prefer the status quo. They kind of just want to keep things calm and go on with their lives. Uh, and I and I understand that impulse. But can can you talk about like the Democratic side of this? Like, you know, the, I know you've written about it this week that, you know, in making that decision 50 years ago, the court really wrested from the public its ability to make these decisions for itself. Uh, if it's overturned, won't that return to the public some sense of democracy? Right. So first of all, you know, I think we see here at play the kind of uh, very misguided nature of calling uh, something disinformation as though it's a new invention that emerged for the first time in the era of Donald Trump or social right. media. Disinformation really is nothing more than campaigns of propaganda designed to ma manipulate and mis the public opinion and to mislead people into believing something you want them to believe. Liberal elites, liberal journalistic elites, coastal elites are actually more ideologically heterodox than people on the right have long assumed. You know, it's just not true, for example, that most journalists who work at the New York Times or NBC News, let alone the people who own and control them, or even like Democratic Party luminaries are socialist or communist on questions of economic policy. They're a lot more conservative than many conservatives assume. But on questions of cultural issues, social issues, LGBT rights, uh, abortion, they are and have long been completely unified in favor of Roe versus Wade and, and more generally the right to an abortion. And they've deliberately cultivated this misleading notion that Roe versus Wade is the only thing that stands between American women and basically having all abortions banned in every instance. And as you correctly point out, there's an enormous middle ground where just like before gay marriage was recognized as a constitutional right, some states legalized it democratically, other states refused to, there were different states that had civil unions and something in between, which is almost certain to be what would happen in the event that Roe versus Wade was overturned, just like what happened prior to Roe versus Wade being issued. There were some states that had legalized abortion, others that have banned it, others that had kind of this middle ground. So I think there's been a deliberate kind of fear-mongering over what Roe versus Wade represents, and in particular, what the state would uh, uh, would be if, if Roe were overruled. But, you know, I to, to the kind of broader point about the court rest, wrestling away from the public, the right to make decisions about policy questions. It's always bothered me that this kind of strain of thought or activism on the right that often depicts any Supreme Court ruling that invalidates or strikes down a law that the right likes and supports as being some kind of judicial tyranny or judicial activism, because the whole reason there's a constitution and the whole reason there's a Supreme Court is precisely because the founders didn't want all decisions to be made by majorities. The founders obviously feared tyranny right. on the part of, part of monarchs and despots and the like. They had just waged the war to emancipate themselves from that kind of tyranny, but they also feared majoritarian tyranny, You know, the excess of the mob that maybe the mob would say, we're gonna take all your property with no due process, or we're gonna ban this particular religion that we don't like and the purpose of the constitution and the Supreme Court, which enforces it, was in some instances to say, yes, a large majority of Americans support this law. Nonetheless, this law still cannot 
be validly enacted because it's in conflict with the Constitution. And right. so one of the arguments I was trying to make yesterday in light of all this liberal indignation over overturning Roe versus Wade and the kind of rhetoric accompanying it, that how can five unelected judges, um, you know, decide the rights of women was bizarre because that's what Roe versus Wade itself was, right? It was seven men who decided to strike down democratically elected laws that majorities in many states, dozens of states supported and overturning Roe versus Wade would do nothing more than returning this hot button controversial question to the democratic and political process. That doesn't mean that it was it's the right thing to do. Some we want some political questions to be taken away from majoritarian rule. That's why there's a yes. bill of rights. So the question is not, is the Supreme Court acting undemocratically when it strikes down laws supported by the majority or is it acting properly when it returns the law or, or the debate to the democratic process? The question is, right. is there anything in the constitution that dictates the outcome? If the answer but, is yes, the Supreme Court should do that. And if the answer is no, it ought to leave it to the public to decide. On this particular question, though, as you point out, Glenn, uh, the Roe versus Wade itself was shoddy jurisprudence. And using shoddy jurisprudence, they wrested control of this decision away from the voters. So if it was sound jurisprudence, if it was the kind of thing that was defensible, uh, that said it was it was loyal and adhered to the Constitution and the laws as written, uh, that would be more defensible to say, well, of course, yeah, look, majorities supported something different but the constitution is really clear on this point, or at least can be interpreted clearly on this point by these judges. Not so here, as you point out. Yeah, I mean, the one thing that I would add though, is there is and should be a significant value assigned to the weight of precedent and to the concept of stare decisis, yeah. whereby settled law should enjoy the deference of having be correctly decided or at least not so wrongly decided that it needs to be overruled. Because if you were to have a, 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 a sort of free-for-all where judges can just go around willy-nilly overturning every precedent, no matter how long standing, no matter how entrenched in American political and cultural life, without any, without assigning any value to the precedent itself, the court would quickly lose legitimacy. It would become unpredictable. It would take on the appearance of being the byproduct of the ideology of the judges that drive it. You do mm -hmm. want institutional respect for especially significant precedent once it takes on a certain significance in American life, the way Roe versus Wade obviously has. And every conservative judge and liberal judge who goes before the Senate affirms their, their commitment to honor that. But on the other hand, you again, don't you obviously don't want every precedent to be shielded from being able to be overruled simply because it's precedent. So you want it to be overruled only when it's not just wrong, but egregiously wrong and damaging, which is the language that Alito used to describe Roe versus Wade. And so I, I'll, I say that only to say that pointing out that Roe is bad jurisprudence doesn't necessarily in and of itself justify overruling it. You need to go a step further mm -hmm. and construct an argument about why the precedential value of that 49-year-old decision is insufficient to outweigh the harms that come from allowing it to stand. Yeah, no, I, I, I think um, a lot of what Glenn said, you know, made a lot of sense. I know that Lawrence Tribe definitely has had his criticisms of, of Roe. Um, and, you know, it's based on there, I think there is 
the argument for Roe, um, as I understand it, and again, I'm not a constitutional lawyer, so I'm not trying to debate, you know, Glenn, <coughs> on these issues, but I think um, comes from the Fourth and Ninth Amendment, and basically is around privacy, and the fact that you don't necessarily need something, you know, my understanding somewhat of the Ninth Amendment, you don't necessarily need something uh, that is spelled out in the Constitution for it to still be assumed as a constitutional right. Am I, under, am I misinterpreting that? No, I think it's an important point. So I think if you were to even ask most conservatives whether they believe there's a constitutional right of privacy, I think even most conservatives would say they, they believe that there is. Yes. I mean, I remember you know during the Snowden reporting when we revealed that the NSA was spying in mass on huge numbers of American citizens, there was a lot of support on the right for that reporting that was grounded in the view that American uh, government mass spying on US citizens was unconstitutional. And typically what would be cited is the Fourth Amendment, the idea that the court, that the government can't uh, you know, exercise a search and seizure of your papers or your property or your home without first demonstrating to a court that there's probable cause to believe that you've engaged in, in some wrongdoing and obtaining a warrant for that. Obviously embedded, deliberately embedded in that amendment is the value of privacy, the idea that American citizens should have the right of privacy, even though it doesn't use that word. There are other amendments too, including the prohibition on soldiers being involuntarily housed in the homes right. of American citizens that clearly are intended to to declare that Americans have a zone of privacy around them that the government cannot intrude into, even though the word privacy isn't used. So I think we have to be very careful about not embracing an obviously stilted and unintended in means of interpreting the constitution that says, unless a specific word like privacy or abortion is mentioned explicitly, it means the Constitution has nothing to say about that. I don't think anyone would agree with that. I could come up with 10 other examples where people say, oh yeah, of course that value is in the Constitution, even though that word isn't there. Mm -hmm. The question then becomes, how far can you extend that? How far can you keep you know, extending a concept that isn't mentioned explicitly in the first place to an issue that clearly nobody thought the Constitution was intended to cover. Obviously, nobody at the time of the enactment of the Bill of Rights thought that it would preclude laws that made abortion uh, criminal um, or that made sodomy criminal. And so then you have the question as well of how much of societal evolution should go into how we interpret the Constitution as well. So these are complex questions. I think the problem that people had with this Roe jurisprudence is it created this concept of penumbras that these amendments sort of emanate kind of like a Ouija board, you know, like a <laughs> unspoken ethos and spirit. And the judges receive this spirit using their intuitive senses and then convert it into jurisprudence. And the potential for abuse of that sort of interpretive matrix is very obvious and, and very real. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Well, you know, the, 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 one of the obvious points I think that probably needs to be raised is really the question of how many lives are at stake in this question, right? So you talk about privacy of the woman, but the way that the pro-life movement has been talking about this ever since Roe was decided and even before that is we're talking about an additional life that's, that's at play. 
and you know the court in its decisions in in Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey began establishing that there is a government interest in protecting that life, but it only happens closer to the end of the pregnancy. So that you know Roe v. Wade in the third trimester, and then Planned Parenthood v. Casey after viability. This is when they start saying, okay, there's an uh, an inherent interest in protecting that life. And that's those lines were arbitrary. The court was just kind of trying to, you know, as far as I'm concerned, maybe you disagree, but decided, okay, this is the point at which the the government interest begin begins to be more uh, relevant in but protecting viability that life. is is scientific. That's not arbitrary. Well, like, it's arbitrary in so far as it, it it's arbitrary in so far as our understanding of viability has changed since. Um, since Roe. I mean, medical advancements have definitely changed since Roe. The ability of a child to survive outside the womb uh, is now ahead of 24 weeks, as was believed since Planned Parenthood v. Casey. So, okay. I mean, there's- So why not make it based on viability and not based on a particular, like, date? You know what I mean? Like, if viability is understood scientifically as 20 weeks, you know, 21 weeks, 23 weeks, then you know you have to adjust but if viability itself is a scientific construction that's not that's not like arbitrary just coming up with a date 15 weeks is an arbitrary date like that's yeah, just but, arbitrary right but my my point is that any picking something like that is is a declaration that we believe this life has has value beyond this point and that prior to it it doesn't have enough substantive value to defend and uh, and you know, I and that to me, just being uh, being pro life as I am, and I believe truly that we've had a genocide going on. And you saw Sam Alito write it in his in this draft opinion. He said in particular, African Americans have had a disproportionate uh, uh, effect to 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 their children through the years. Forty percent of black babies aborted. Um, that's a massive impact. And so, and I and what we've had is basically. A system where, anyway, why, uh, that we've we've essentially um, created a system where we don't really talk about the life portion. But it's clear, Glenn, that the government does feel like, at least even the Roe Court believed that there was some protections for the baby that were necessary the closer it got to being born. Yeah, I think the debate that you guys just had actually sheds important light on several important components of this whole question. So, you know, first of all, um, there's this kind of fear-mongering effort underway to say that if Roe falls, it means that, you know, all the precedent that protected the right of, of people to engage in interracial marriage or same-sex marriage or contraception, the kind of privacy precedent, the progeny out of which Roe emerged is also going to be in danger. And I think that has always been very misleading to me, both legally and, and politically, because as your discussion reveals, there's a fundamental difference between abortion and all of those other questions, which is all of those other questions involve the consenting behavior of adults in their private lives that have no effect or no harm on anybody else. And I've always taken an extremely strong libertarian view and again, I would call it civil libertarian view on the right of adults to engage in whatever consensual behavior they want in their private lives without being um, regulated or let alone barred or criminalized by the US government. Abortion is obviously different because at least many people believe, and I think it's hard to deny, that it involves not just the two people involved who conceived of the child and who will be their parents, but also 
the child itself at whatever point you want to say it becomes a child clearly there is some point at which it does and it removes it from all these other questions the other issue is i think one of the things that bothers a lot of people jurisprudentially about roe and all of these the subsequent efforts to uh define what these abortion rights are is that when you start talking about things like fetal viability and when does fetal viability begin and you have questions, very complex questions of science. And I can promise you having gone to law school, which is the only education all of these judges have, you don't study biology and, um, you know, these complex questions of neonatal development and the like. And so when you have judges now not just saying this right exists, this right doesn't exist, this law violates this right or it doesn't, but kind of promulgating what looks a lot like regulation scientific regulations, that's when it just starts feeling as though it's become well removed from the proper role of a judge, the competence and expertise of a judge, the kind of thing that scientific boards and regulatory agencies and members of Congress representing citizens ought to be deciding. You know, it, it just intuitively feels much less like a legal, a form of legal reasoning and a lot more like political and scientific reasoning. And I think that's been one of the, the, the difficulties in accepting the idea that this is that judges are the ones who are competent to decide this. The other, you know, to your point about how life is uh, treated in these debates. Well, for one thing, I do think it's very interesting. There is a like, you know, Alito's opinion is being depicted as kind of the maximalist extremist view. But it's really not in the sense that there's a very strong pro-life argument legally and politically that not only is it improper to declare that there's a right of abortion, that the Constitution actually should be read to ban abortion because it's a violation of the constitutional rights of the baby or of the fetus or of the unborn child, something that Alito didn't go anywhere near doing. He, you know, That is something the court theoretically could do, right, is to say, not only is there a right to abortion, not only is there no right to abortion, there's actually a constitutional right that's being violated of the unborn child by allowing abortion at all. And therefore, the Constitution requires a complete and total ban on abortion. That's something that Alito did not do. To your point about loss of life, I mean, there was a kind of strong eugenicist and genocidal uh, ideology to some of those early abortion pioneers with Planned Parenthood and Margaret Sanger. A lot of that has been you know, kind of dug up and discussed. And I think some of that remains today. The one point that I would say, though, from a, and this is really more of a policy perspective, but when you're counting life, it's critical to point out is in general, when you outlaw abortion, it's kind of like, you know, when we outlaw drugs, we outlaw drugs. It doesn't mean that people who want to take drugs stop taking drugs. It means they take drugs in a more dangerous way. We create, you know, violent cartels and markets. People have to get unregulated substances. That's the reason why a lot of people are dying now because it's all underground. There's fentanyl in it. They don't know that. There's no regulatory agency. That's what we learned with prohibition as well. You can ban alcohol or drugs, but people still do it. The same is true of, with abortion. If you ban abortions, what we know from history and from other countries is that women don't start stop having them. They just have them in much more dangerous ways. Wealthy women can travel to other countries, to other states, where they can have abortions in, you know, very kind of professionalized and safe clinics, but poor women end up 
you know, having the cliched back alley abortion that is often very unsafe and end up um, dying as well. So I think there's a life and a uh, health component on each side of, of this debate, not just uh, the pro-life side. But can I, so ask, I, I, I I'm sorry, uh, I know Jason has a question, but let me just on that data point, I just want to get some clarification. If you know, there's no decrease in abortions in situations where it's made illegal. I mean, no, I'm not, I, I can't, I can't say that there's none. If you put legal barriers in front of somebody or right. threaten somebody with prison, we saw that with vaccine mandates, right? If, if you tell somebody you're going to lose your job, unless you get the vaccine that you don't want, people are going to go get that vaccine. When you threaten people with the force of law, it is effective. Right. I'm just saying it's, it's not nearly as effective as the debate often assumes. It doesn't make abortion stop or go away. Okay. Yeah, so I, I actually uh, want to come back to the, the privacy point. Um, and that is one of the arguments, I don't know if you saw or if you heard what um, Justice Sotomayor was saying um, in, in the discussion uh, with the people from, from Mississippi. And I think, honestly, you know, part of this thing about African-Americans and a genocide I think it's disingenuous, and, and I'll, I'll go into that a little bit later. But the main thing that, that she was saying is that um, there is evidence that says carrying a child to term, uh, a woman is 14 times more likely to die carrying a child to term than having a safe abortion. So you are basically making women assume a risk which is essentially uh, an affront to their privacy. What do you what do you make of that argument? And I may I, and, and let me be clear, I may be totally butchering that. So Justice Sotomayor, not like you watch, you know, Daily Caller, but uh, Justice <laughs> Sotomayor, if I screwed that up, forgive me. Glenn. Yeah, you know, um, I put a lot of stake in that argument. You know, it's one of the reasons why I've generally, one of the reasons why I've avoided the abortion debate is because the discourse demands of you that you take a definitive position. Right. And it's very difficult in my view to take one because of these complexities. There are, clearly are valid and legitimate interests on both sides of the debate. There absolutely is a real interest in having an adult woman be able to exercise autonomy over her body and to obtain medical procedures that her doctor recommends for her health or that she wants for her life, which clearly are undermined and subverted when the government tramples into this relationship and says, we are not going to permit you to have this surgery. We are not going to permit you to have this medical procedure to terminate your pregnancy. We're going to force you instead to carry it to term, even though it may cause harm to you psychologically, even though it may disrupt your life and your career, even though it may impose health risks on you. And you're right, of course, it's more dangerous, way more dangerous to carry a baby to full term than it is to have a safe and legal abortion, but it's way more dangerous still to have an unsafe abortion. I mean, I right. forget the exact number, but I think it was something like, you know, they were seeing thousands of women in emergency rooms on the verge of death. I know here in Brazil where abortion is illegal, that's exactly what happened. Rich women fly to you know, places where they can have abortions. There are clandestine clinics where you pay a lot of money and poor women, which constitute the majority of women in Brazil, 
are constantly ending up in the hospital or even dying using very unsafe means to have to try and abort their baby. Those are real. You have to acknowledge that those are very valid, legal, constitutional, social, cultural, uh, and political values that militate in favor of keeping the government out of that process. On the other side of that equation, though, obviously, is the question of how much value you assign to the life of the unborn child and at which stages that value is assigned and, and, and to what value. I think most people, not all, obviously, certainly not the Catholic Church doctrine, for example, but most people, I think, in modern American political life would say we assign more value to an eight-month-old unborn child than we do to you know, a fetus that's a month old and has no sentience, no self-consciousness, no capacity to feel pain, to suffer. Um, but all these are very complex scientific and medical questions. The question of when unborn children start to feel pain and develop sentience is an independent question from when they obtain fetal viability. And I just really have strong doubts about the competence or ability of the court to be making those distinctions. Mm -hmm. Let me, uh, if I if I can, Jason, I want to move on to uh, some issues around speech uh, with sure. uh, with our guest. Uh, really appreciate him being here, Glenn Greenwald. Um, you guys the, have lured me into talking about a topic for thirty minutes that I've succeeded in avoiding for fifteen years. So <laughs> well, we figured we, you know, just see, see, we were testing ourselves. We were seeing whether we could do it. Um, let me move into to speech. You know, there's uh, quite a bit going on on that front. You have Elon Musk acquiring Twitter. It's causing a real panic on the American left that the conversation will broaden to a place that they don't like. Um, additionally, you've got the uh, Biden administration announcing through DHS something called a disinformation governance board. Uh, the right has reacted with a lot of aggression to this, calling it pretty uniformly a ministry of truth. Uh, although at this point, it looks like it hasn't quite gotten off the launch pad yet. Are, are you concerned about um, this uh, disinformation governance board? And, and what do you make of sort of the left's handling of issues around free speech at this moment uh, brought more broadly? Yeah, I'm extremely concerned about it, you know, and it's um, probably aside from my strong skepticism about the multi-pronged bullshit that was the Russiagate conspiracy theory, the objections I have, not just to the left, but to establishment liberalism's embrace of censorship and increasing levels of a censorship regime, both online and offline, is probably the thing that has caused a, a, a strong breach between people like myself and Matt Taibbi, and maybe kind of people associated with a sort of generational version of what left-wing politics had always represented with this kind of newer iteration of left liberalism. Um, you know, I think that one of the, probably one of the most uh, formative political events for me when I was really starting to become politically conscious and aware was the ACLU's representation in 1977 of the right of the American Nazi party to march through Skokie, Illinois even though Skokie was not just a heavily Jewish community, but one particularly filled with Holocaust, Holocaust survivors, survivors <laughs> people who were actually in camps. Remember 1977 right. uh, was only, you know, 30 years after the end of World War II. There were a lot of people who, you know, were in their teens or early twenties who were, you know, only in their fifties and sixties. There was a significant 
survivor population. And Skokie was one of the towns that became renowned for having them. And that's why the American party, Nazi party wanted to watch walk through them. And the ACLU lawyers who defended the right of the American Nazi party to march through Skokie and who sued the city of Skokie for denying the, 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 the marching permit were mostly Jewish leftists. That has always yeah. been, you know, the old school ACLU. It came out of this tradition of Jewish leftism that believed in free speech, not only as a principle, like a philosophy or a value that drove the enlightenment and the founding, but also as a political tactic, because their view was, which seems very obvious to me, though it is completely rejected now by most of the American left, that free speech is not a weapon, or censorship rather, is not a weapon that the marginalized uses against the powerful. It's a weapon that the powerful uses against the marginalized. It's always people with marginalized views, dissidents and the like, who end up censored. And American Jews felt as a marginalized minority in history in the United States that it was vital to stand up at all times to any notion that the state or corporations had the right to dictate what we can and can't say based on self-interest. And they actually, people have forgotten this as well, had a lot of support at the time in that controversy and in their general free speech work from African-American civil rights leaders who also knew that censorship would likely be used against their own movement. So for me, it was one of the most honorable things you could do to, to, to venerate a principle to such an extent. And they put their careers at risk. The ACLU was almost destroyed because obviously a lot of their donors were Jewish as well, were leftists as well. And they were so horrified that they abandoned the organization. It almost went bankrupt and they pursued that case until the end because free speech was such a kind of guiding light, like a North Star of left-wing politics in the United States and then in the West. Noam Chomsky, probably the most influential leftist intellectual, is a free speech absolutist and always has been. So to now watch <laughs> the internet, which, you know, is for me the most significant invention in my lifetime. It's, you know, the reason why Edward Snowden risked his liberty Thank in you, order to... Yeah, no, thank you, I, Al Gore, who invented it. Um, but you know, Ed, Edward Snowden, when I when I was trying to understand why he was willing to risk his the rest of his life in a in a prison cell to defend the the privacy privacy on the internet, you know, had said that for him as a as a child growing up in this kind of working class family without a lot of economic means, the way he explored the world, he couldn't travel, he had no money to you know go outside Virginia, was through the internet and to protect the internet. This technology that was supposed to free us, liberate us from centralized state and corporate control was the promise of the internet and to watch it being converted instead to the one of the most potent tools of surveillance and control and now censorship was sufficiently horrifying to him that he felt like it was a cause that he was willing to go to prison for. And that's how I feel as well that, you know, if you take the internet and you impose a censorship regime on it, then you're taking what had been the most liberatory tool, the most kind of empowering tool that had emerged in decades and converting it into the one, one of the most potent tools of repression. And it is being led entirely by this unholy union of the Democratic Party, the corporate media, and the US security state. The US security state is absolutely fixated on the need to preserve this censorship regime, you see it with 
the war in Ukraine. You saw it with COVID. It's always being implemented to advance and serve the interest of the United States government, of its mm-hmm. foreign policy, of its health professionals, of its establishment, and to silence and, and, and eliminate all forms of dissent. And so for me, it's not just kind of an ancillary culture war issue that I'm in disagreement with on with some parts of the left. Any political movement that devotes itself to a censorship regime, to upholding and expanding it into eroding free speech values is a movement that I'm going to regard as my adversary or even my enemy. So <clears throat> I wanted to, um, first of all, uh, the issue with Skokie, I, I think that that was, of course, a fascinating um, case. And I remember reading about it. And, you know, at first I was like, you're going to let Nazis, you know, go through, you know, I grew up in around a lot of Jewish people and, you know, people that still had numbers tattooed on their arms, you know what I mean? And, and, um, you know, at first, when I first read about Skokie, I was like, this is insane. But then when I, you know, dove in and understood that, you know, what they were arguing, which is exactly what you were saying there, um, you know, essentially that you don't want there to be a a way of crushing free speech because it's not popular with certain people or popular with a group um that would have hurt civil rights that would have hurt you know women's rights that would have hurt all kinds of protests um and that is a violation of the first amendment now what i don't understand and and honestly i i really don't know because everything that i've read doesn't make it seem, or at least it doesn't say that there's an enforcement mechanism for this disinformation board. So is it just that the disinformation board is going to get together and study disinformation and try to challenge it? The government is really good at studying stuff and not doing much. So, you know, they study reparations, they, or they won't even study that, but they'll study things and not actually do something. So is this actually something that has an enforcement mechanism where people will be, uh, you know, uh, punished for disinformation? Or is that just kind of an Orwellian thought that people on the right have, you know, think it's going to lead down a particular path that's going to lead to us locking people up for spreading lies on the internet? Yeah, it's a great question. And it just so happens that I'm in the middle of an article, which I hope to publish later today, that addresses exactly that question that you just asked, Jason, which is, is it kind of a form of exaggeration or hysteria to treat this as something more than it is? Is it really just this kind of like benign, like advisory board that just got poorly named and, you know, as as the Homeland Security Secretary tried to say on CNN, was just poorly communicated in terms of what it is? Or is it something actually more pernicious? And I think it's definitely something more pernicious. And I'll explain to you why. For me, the single worst, most egregious official disinformation campaign of the last several years was in the lead up the weeks prior to the 2020 election, when the corporate media united with the intelligence community and big tech to lie to the American people and to claim that these emails that came from Hunter Biden's laptop that shed light on Joe Biden's business dealings in China and Ukraine were not authentic, but were in fact Russian disinformation. It was clear to me at the time that that was a complete lie, that they were those emails were authentic. I've 
authenticated large archives in my career. I know how to do that. And all the indicia was it was authentic, but now we have the definitive proof, even from an establishment perspective that the New York Times and the Washington Post both have said they've authenticated these materials. So we know that it was false, what we were told by all of these institutions. The most important thing to recognize about that episode is that the way that worked was that it wasn't big tech or, or media outlets which pronounced this archive to be Russian disinformation. They created a kind of pretense of quasi-official uh, authoritative <laughs> decree by getting these intelligence officials to cite their quote unquote expertise to say, look, we don't have proof that this came from Russia, but our experience tells us that in the words of James Clapper on CNN, this has all of the hallmarks of Soviet Russian tradecraft. So they, 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 they elevated this lie, this, this, this disinformation campaign with the pretense of expertise, some sort of official decree. It wasn't just part of the back and forth political partisan debate. It was the people who are you know, trained experts in disinformation pronounced that it was so, and that then justified and enabled and even forced the media to ignore it, the, uh, you know, Facebook and Twitter to ban it because the word was passed down from the mountaintop, you know, like the 10 commandments, this is Russian disinformation. This is the same reason that you have this entirely new, extremely well-funded industry with all of these groups that have benign sounding names, like the Institute for, you know, um, objective scholarship or the group to combat, you know, radical disinformation. And you have all these people who are presented as these, you know, experts in disinformation who are apolitical and float above the political debates. And when you look at them, they're all funded by the same small handful of left liberal billionaires like George Soros and Pierre Omidyar. They're all tied to the CIA or the MI6 or European Union and NATO intelligence agencies, often to even Facebook and Google, that has the same goal, which is to say, it's not the left or the right that determines disinformation. There's this kind of special group, this kind of elevated ennobled uh, priesthood that sits on the mountaintop and passes down decrees, you know, kind of like they try to elevate partisan journalism by calling it fact-checking. That's that's what the attempt is to do. And the, the ability to label something disinformation is incredibly powerful because you can get big tech to censor it. Yeah. You can get media outlets to ignore it. And in many countries, including in the EU and Canada, it's actually a crime. And, and there's legislation pending to criminalize it even more to disseminate disinformation. So what this is in Homeland Security is an attempt to create an official designation of what is and isn't disinformation that given the First Amendment probably will not, at least in the United States for the moment, result in having the FBI come to your house and arrest you if you defend ideas that this board has proclaimed to be disinformation. Right. But it will certainly make it far more likely and in the minds of millions of people far more justified for big tech to censor you or deplatform you if you use it. And ultimately, for you to start having legal jeopardy in other countries and probably soon in the United States for engaging in a campaign to disseminate what the U.S. government has officially decreed will be disinformation. But at the very least, it will shape media discourse, po popular perception. That's what it's designed to do is to take these ridiculous, you know, this woman who they pick to run it is like a cartoon 
of like a resistance extremist. There's no Democratic Party disinformation campaign she hasn't ratified. There's no absurd leftist hashtag she hasn't posted all over Twitter. She sung a fucking song about disinformation, calling herself the Mary Poppins of disinformation. This idea of disinformation expertise itself is a fraud. Like, how do you develop an expertise in disinformation? There's no place you go and study it. There's no licensing board. There's no field of discipline in, in any, it, it's just, it's all a concoction to elevate it from what it really is, which is just a partisan or ideological or political weapon into something that seems more neutral, more scientific, and therefore more authoritative. I, to, to your point about the Hunter Biden story, that was obviously very dangerous for our system. Uh, I think that, uh, that we've seen similar dangers throughout COVID. Remember at one point, Scott Atlas, who worked for Trump as a health official, was tweeting skepticism about the efficacy of masks his content was taken down from Twitter for disagreeing with government scientists. The guy was literally a government scientist, uh, but they said the CDC doesn't say this, so we're taking it down. They, uh, had a, they had a Senate hearing convened by Rand Paul where some researchers were talking early on about the potential of ivermectin, and they removed the video of what was actually a Senate hearing from YouTube on the same ground. That's how extreme it became. So, so you mentioned something that I think is interesting that I don't think the American audience broadly is aware of, uh, which is the EU uh, trying to regulate uh, internet content. I see that in the past week they've passed this or they're moving towards passing this Digital Services Act at the behest of both Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton in the United States. Uh, and the idea here is that they want EU nations to police what they refer to as, quote, harmful content with a special emphasis on moments of emergency that the EU will be able to exert more power over these big tech companies over something like Russia's invasion of Ukraine. That's literally the example that they've been giving uh, to justify these broad powers across all these EU nations. It's interesting to see Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama favorably endorsing it here in the United States. What do you think this is about? I mean, I think that these institutions of ruling power, kind of the neoliberal order in the Western world, understand that they have become increasingly despised and distrusted. You see it in, you know, everywhere you look from the election of Trump to the approval of Brexit to the election of leaders like Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil to even Marine Le Pen's far better showing than it was ever imagined a, a, a right wing figure could, could succeed in France. And simultaneously, they know that their system of information that they use to disseminate news to the public to, to control public opinion is, is, is being eroded and undermined and subverted by the rise of independent media, by the use of the internet in order to compete with their narratives. They're petrified about it. And their motive is the same as all censors throughout history, which is the ability to control what people can and can't say and what information can and can't be heard is one of the most powerful weapons a person can possess in their hands. And I think that Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton fear a lot of the changes we're seeing in Western democracies, the kind of rise of populism, both on the left and the right, um, the growing distrust for institutions of authority. There were signs of unrest during COVID that were pretty substantial, which is why we saw severe acts of repression, like in Canada, freezing the bank accounts with no due process of people associated with the peaceful protest that the government didn't like. And so this advocacy for not just having big tech censor more, which the Democrats have been demanding of them under threat of legal and re regulatory reprisals for 18 months now, but also to institute new legal frameworks 
is really chilling. You know, living outside of the United States sometimes gives you a perspective of what's wrong with the United States that you can't really see when you're immersed in it, but it can also make you realize what's good about the United States. Here in Brazil, where there's no First Amendment, it is a crime to express all sorts of opinions that are deemed racist or misogynistic or homophobic or transphobic, and it's commonly applied. So some you know, talk show host or pundit says something that's deemed racist, and there's a criminal investigation that gets opened against that person, that just like if you robbed a bank or, or assaulted somebody, and the same is true in the EU and in Canada, the First Amendment, thankfully, is somewhat of a bulwark against that, but part of the attempt to erode First Amendment doctrine in the United States is to enable those kinds of laws to start to be, to take root here in the United States. And the key to that is to condition the public that censorship is not only tolerable, but something they should be grateful for in their own good. And you have this series of crisis, crises from Russiagate to January 6th to COVID and now the war in Ukraine, one after the next, all of which is uh, being exploited to tell the public that it is vital that we censor certain kinds of dissent because that dissent isn't just wrong, but dangerous. And it's conditioning an entire generation of people to believe that when authorities censor, the right response is not anger, but gratitude because they're doing it to protect you and in your own good. Yeah, I mean, that, that racism law in Brazil certainly hasn't affected Bolsonaro himself, uh, but I, I hear- well, he, he, he has been investigated. There have been criminal yeah. probes open up against them. Obviously, it's hard when it's an elected president, but, you know, it, it, it still can chill a lot of people, even if the president ends up not in prison. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. And I and, um, you know, I, I hear people talk about free speech absolutism. And of course, uh, you know, we want to kind of get your opinion on Elon Musk. But um, Elon Musk has said he is a free speech absolutist. But he also said, that the far right and the far left will be upset with the way he runs Twitter. So to me, something doesn't jive there. Like if the far right and the far left, and I don't even know what the far left is or anymore, or, or even I kind of understand what the far right is. I don't know what the far left is. Um, so if they're both going to be upset with how he runs Twitter, then somebody's speech is going to be curtailed. Am I, Am I taking a specious leap there or does no, you agree? No, you're, you're absolutely not. Um, you know, I've, I've been skeptical of Elon Musk's intentions as well as his ability to, you know, usher in some sort of free speech revolution on Twitter for all kinds of reasons. If you look at the history of Elon Musk, he's not exactly a revolutionary or a radical dissident against status quo institutions of power. He's very comfortable within them. They've been very beneficial to him. He's maintained very good relations with it. Um, I do believe that there's this growing and very authentic anger um, on the part of that generation of Silicon Valley founders and oligarchs and billionaires about largely about woke ideology because it in their view is impeding their businesses they're you know the all of these companies are infiltrated in their minds with woke millennials who want to control their speech and business in a way that they genuinely are angry about but also i think that you know the way i described the internet earlier in this kind of libertarian sense is very much the vision they shared and so for them to wow watch you know google and facebook being 
routinely banning and prohibiting certain ideas or people who are deemed dissidents, I think is genuinely disturbing to them. You know, I know a lot of them, I talk to them, I think it's like a very real anger. But, you know, when I say that I'm skeptical of both his ability and his intentions, one of the primary reasons is that tweet that you said, and I think he's said it twice now, where he said kind of like, the ideal world is if, 10%, if the 10% of the furthest left and the 10% of the furthest right are angry at you and we're serving the, the middle 80%. This is like the opposite of some sort of radical free speech view. If anything, that's been the common, you know, sort of Washington pundit cliche right. that, oh, if the left and the right are mad at me, it must mean I'm doing something right. right and right. also there are ways to, to achieve this vision, right? To make the 10% of the furthest left and furthest right angry at you when one way to do it is you're suggesting is to say simply ban the 10% of the furthest leftist and 10% of the furthest right and only allow the 80% in the middle to be able to use Twitter. That is not a free speech value. That is a censorship value. It's saying as long as you heed to centrist values or the mainstream, you can speak freely. <laughs> and is but if you veer into the extremes, you're going to be centered. That's the status quo. Yeah. Right. So right. yeah, I don't think he's thought very deeply about either free speech as an intellectual uh, concept, the history of free speech, or how it gets applied to, to, to social media platforms like Twitter. I think it's just more kind of like an impulse and a sentiment on which he's feeding from people he likes and trusts who are angry about woke ideology and, and, and censorship. But yeah. you know, so where that goes and who ends up searing him and also the kind of backlash he's gonna get, wall we'll determine what the outcome of this will be but i found that tweet uh disturbing for exactly the reason yeah. that you did I'm, I'm wondering if on net it'll be an improvement i kind of expect it will be over uh the current regime in charge of twitter so that's that's in that's in my view it's like well i'll take a slight improvement over some sort mm -hmm. of free speech absolutist platform if necessary uh but um the, the other thing i'm wondering about is the impact that china is going to play in elon musk's business decisions when it comes to twitter and speech because china is his second biggest market for distribution of teslas obviously the actual like production you know component of this too although he's got plants in america relying on supplies from china um so uh, you, you know you, you wonder like the chinese government isn't happy when hollywood movies criticize china they they ban entire studios from their country for decades if that happens you know what's going to happen in, a, in an elon musk environment where twitter uh with, when elon musk owns twitter and people are expressing views about china that the communists <laughs> do not like and then they begin placing pressure on him to remove those views what is and that going to do to his business, business in china you know if you don't remove this post we're going to close your tesla factory or remove these benefits that allow you to to serve the chinese market those are legitimate concerns you know I think though, um, one of the ironies was, at least for me, the first person I saw really raising that of any prominence was Jeff Bezos, who has this kind of phallic <laughs> competition with Elon Musk over their you know, desire to put their rockets higher up than the other one and to have the bigger rockets and the like. So um, you know, I think that was part of what was driving it, especially because Amazon has its own history of accommodating Chinese demands for censorship when a book by President Xi was put on Amazon's platform is kind of a collection of his speeches, there started to appear negative comments and the Chinese government complained and the Amazon removed those negative comments and then banned comments from that page entirely. So it was kind of ironic 
seeing Jeff Bezos say there was a conflict between Elon Musk's free speech commitment and his business dealings with China when Amazon has the same exact one. And I think, you know, you've seen Facebook and Google and almost every business accommodating the Chinese government here in Brazil. The same thing has happened. The Bolsonaro uh, family, the children in particular, are very tied to right wing political figures like you know, the MAGA movement, Steve Bannon, that's very anti-China. So they started spouting anti-China rhetoric. Unfortunately for them, China is the biggest and most important trading partner for Brazil. And so the kind of adults in the Bolsonaro administration, the vice president, the military, you know, uh, financial leaders had to come out and, you know, kind of obsequiously apologize to the Chinese for the criticism that came from Bolsonaro's sons, who, you know, are elected politicians in their own right. You see this influence in all kinds of places. So I think it's a very legitimate question to ask. Um, I just don't know that it's unique to Elon Musk right. um, because it, it seems to be happening with almost every significant uh, American sector, including, as you said, Hollywood. Yeah, 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 definitely. So I have one question as somebody who, who was a fan of yours um, many years ago when I was reading you in The Intercept and then you know, I read all of that stuff, Jacobin and, all, you know, all the things that I perceived as being leftist publications. Um, and it just seems to me, and I, I hope this doesn't offend you in any, in any kind of way, but it just seems to me like everyone that I perceived in it, and you've clarified your, your own political um, stance, but it seems to me like everyone who was on the left is now arguing with one another and hates each other. So like you and Jenk and uh, is it Jenk or Chen? I never know how to pronounce his name. Um, and uh, you know, Aaron Mate and you know, all, all these people are just arguing and hating each other, you know? Why did that happen? And is there anything we can do to at least maybe have a peace treaty? You know what I mean? I'm trying to engineer a peace treaty. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, first of all, I think it's important to observe and not as a kind of whataboutism observation, but because it sheds light on, on the reasons for it, that there's very similar dynamics and conflicts on the right. I yeah. know 10 years ago, Bill Kristol and David Frum <laughs> were members of good standing in American conservatism, as was people like Nicole Wallace and Steve Schmidt and Rick Wilson, and now there are barely people more despised among conservatives than all of them. They've right. clearly switched sides. Um, the whole Lincoln project is emblematic and part of like a, a grifting campaign, but also a very real kind of uh, reaction to the way in which the Republican Party transformed as a result of Donald Trump. And I think, you know, I think in general, politics changes maybe say every decade or certainly, you know, every generation with and particularly like kind of transformative presidents because the nature of the political debates change. So I don't think it's so much that people change their views. I think the, the debates that end up taking center stage change. And so a person who was your ally, you know, 10 years ago on the question of should Americans be detaining people in Guantanamo without due process and torturing them, and, you know, people who said, yeah, that's a, a really bad thing that, you know, no one talks about Guantanamo anymore. The war on terror is basically over. So people who agreed on those issues now have very different views on sort of the new cultural and political debates, the question of, of big tech, the question of censorship, the culture war questions like the agenda of trans rights and things, just the issues that shape political 
coalitions and where you fall on the spectrum change pretty radically. Look at how much change there has been on the American right. You know, the when when um, there were those protest movements that erupted in Havana, you know, nine months ago, and both Democratic and Republican leaders were saying we need to go and aid those protesters and stand with these protesters against the repressive Cuban government. The only place that I could go in order to say the United States has no business interfering in the domestic politics of Cuba was the Tucker Carlson show. The only place you can go now to question the Biden administration's policies shared by Republican leaders about whether we should be intervening in the war in Ukraine with billions and billions and billions of dollars and more and more military weapons to the point we're depleting our own stockpiles is the kind of you know anti-establishment right-wing populist outlets or the left-wing populist outlets as well. And I think you're seeing this with more and more issues. It's the reason neocons migrated back to the Democratic <laughs> Party because neocons correctly perceive that their agenda is best served by the Democratic Party given Trump's antipathy to endless war and imperialism and the, the skepticism that he ushered in about the CIA and the FBI institutions that the American right once revered. And so when I look around and, and, and try and find what I can grasp onto uh, as kind of allies or, or uh, partners in pursuing the political causes I've always defended, you know, the people that I find are people who are much different than the ones I found 10 years ago. And of course, there's some personality conflicts involved in media divisions, but I think these are just very real substantive disputes about whether the best way to achieve, say, left liberal political goals is by staying in captivity to a Democratic Party that really doesn't believe in them and trying to sort of transform it from within, which I think is a futile goal for all kinds of reasons, mm -hmm. or to say, I'm not going to be constrained by these boxes and being told that the only people with whom I can work and partner on an issue by issue basis are people who identify as leftists or Democrats. Sometimes there are people on the right um, who actually share my views even more than the people I'm supposed to be working with do. And in those cases, I'm gonna be prioritizing the political cause itself above fealty to any political faction, let alone a party or an ideology. And I think that's where a lot of the division is coming from. Glenn, Glenn, let me let me end with this then, because I've been wondering, you are still an American citizen, although you're living in uh, Brazil. Do you vote in American elections? And if you were to uh, coming up in 22 or 24, could you see yourself voting for Republicans? So I don't vote. I, I, I am a full American citizen. I'm not a citizen of Brazil. I pay taxes to the US government. Obviously, I could vote. Nine million American citizens live outside the United States. It's a pretty big number. Um, I don't vote only because I feel like it would interfere with my work, meaning my for me, the essence of my work always has to be independence from anyone who wields political power. And I feel like if I voted for somebody, it would mean that I've somehow become vested in their success and it would impede my ability to criticize them or to analyze them fairly. But there definitely are instances, and I haven't hidden this at all, where I feel like I have more in common politically with, say, J.D. Vance than I do with Chuck Schumer. And so, sure, there are definitely times when, at least for the issues that I prioritize most, there are times, not all the time or necessarily most of the time, but certainly there are times, non-trivial instances in which 
the person who's identified as being on the right or the Republican has more in common with my political values than the person who calls himself a Democrat. Yeah, man. Well, <laughs> I, I really appreciate this conversation. I know Jason does too. Glenn Greenwald, Absolutely. thanks for spending some time with us today. I really appreciate that. I hope you can do it again someday. Yeah, I'd have, be happy to do it. Thanks for having me. It was a really interesting conversation. Thank yeah, you, Glenn. Thanks a lot. All right, good talking to you guys. Good talking to you, sir.